0: On the show today, I'm joined by star of stage and screen Callie Barrett, who you may have recently seen in the multi-Emmy nominated Fossey Verdon. We talk about all that and more. It's a great show. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Benjamin, and I couldn't be more excited to be back with you after our short break. Now, this is a very exciting episode because I'm sitting down with Kelly Barrett. Now, she's been on Broadway and off-Broadway in Rock of Ages, Dr. Zhivago, Wicked, and Merrily We Roll Along, and she's also been on screen in Marvel's The Punisher, and uh, more recently in the multi-Emmy award-nominated series Fosse Verdon, where she played Liza Minnelli opposite Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams. Now, we talk all about that series, as well as her Broadway work, and a whole lot more. It is a fantastic chat, so don't go anywhere. Here it is. Enjoy. Kelly, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, let's start with one of your most recent projects, playing Liza Minnelli in Fosse Verdon. How did this project eventuate?
1: Oh, yes. So um, I got the audition for this TV show. I heard that the uh, creative team of Hamilton was putting together this new show for FX. Uh, much in the same vein as the sort of Ryan Murphy miniseries that have been done in the past. But now it was going to be Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kail and Alex Lackamore, um, sort of Broadway giants, and uh, a couple of people of whom, like Andy Blankenbuehler and Alex Lackamore that I knew and I'd worked with before. So I was it was sort of like all abuzz in the Broadway community. Everybody knew about it, and there were all these rumblings. And then very randomly, I get an audition uh, via email from my agent for the role of Liza Minnelli. And the breakdown was something, you know, really simple, like uh, an inevitable star. (laughs) The molecules shift when she walks in the room, you know, nothing intimidating at all for me. Um, And I had been a real, like, tried and true Judy Garland fan my whole life and a Liza Minnelli fan my whole life and I never I always did like Judy Garland impersonations growing up but um I never tried to tackle Liza. I always thought that she had I don't know, she had a quality that I just didn't possess something that was more than I had and so it was very intimidating. But anyway I, I, I got the part through a pretty conventional you know, route, which was just going in and auditioning and then having having a call back and a work session and and
0: all of that. And as you said, she is absolutely iconic. What was your preparation process like to make sure that you weren't just impersonating her, but you were actually playing her?
1: Well, the first thing I had to do, I think that we, that any of us have to do as actors, because lately, the, <clears throat> whatever's going on in, in the, the, or the artistic climate that we're in, we, we are telling a lot of stories, you know, we're going back and we're playing these icons. We're doing it on Broadway and we're doing it in, in television. And so, Anytime any of us is being approached with, you know, an existing person, the first thing you have to do is realize that you're going to fail. And I mean that in a lovely way. I believe, I believe very much in failing and and accepting your own failure and, and realizing it's a part of the process. Um, I will never be Eliza McKinley nor should I pretend like I can. And once, once you accept that you'll never be that person, Then it allows you to try to be your own version of it, which at, you know, at that point and, and now it's it's become what we were, what we were going for anyway was a loving homage. I don't think when you watch the show, you're going, Oh, that's exactly Liza. I I could swear that was Liza. That's sort of not the point. It's to say, okay, this actress is funneling the energy of Liza Minnelli through her own authenticity. And that's what I was trying to do. So the first thing I had to do was figure out what about Liza Minnelli resonated true with myself. And what I, what I really connected to was her energy. Um, so I started there. She's sort of this like, and her mother had it too, this like, leave it out all out on the stage. Like, you kind of feel like when she's done with the numbers, she could die afterward because she's just given all of herself to it. And I just, I always loved that about them. I remember sitting very close to the television as a child to try to get some of it. Cause I just felt like it was that juju that I wanted. Um, so I went through that door, the energy door, and I watched everything I could possibly find on her, and more than just her performances, which I already knew a lot of. Um, I watched a lot of interviews so that I could just get a sense of who she was then. Because in, in the early 1970s, that Liza Minnelli is not necessarily the Liza Minnelli we associate with today. We have a different understanding of her as she got older and a little more. Um, she's a little more caricatured than you know than she was when she was young and first starting out. So I wanted to get to those old interviews of what her, um, you know, her youthful energy was like. So I watched a lot of interviews. I watched Liza with a Z multiple times, and I've always worshipped that uh, that concert. You know, one of the first filmed concerts won the Academy Award. I mean, it was just it was it was a huge accomplishment. And um, as a cabaret artist myself, I, I've always watched it as a reference point of how to build a show. So I watched that a lot and just saw her repertoire with the audience and how, how she spoke, how she moved, what her you know, gestures were like. And again, just trying to filter that through my own take of it.
0: And you did an incredible job Thank playing you. her and the show itself has been so wonderfully received. What do you think it is that makes a show like that resonate with audiences?
1: Well, what I really love about this show is it feels very insider baseball to me. It's not um it's not speaking to the person watching that knows the least. It's actually speaking to the person who knows the most. And what I appreciate about that as an audience member, even if I don't know a lot about the subject matter, you're treating me like I do. So it makes me feel intelligent. It makes me feel already a part of your world. And then the things I don't know, I can go up later, um, go off later and look up on you know, Google or whatever to. To understand the references. But it's very um, intelligent that way. It's not dumbing anything down. And I think also people are pretty, pretty riveted, and we're in a culture that's slightly obsessed with the behind the curtain of how art is made. And that's what it's giving you. You know, we do a few, the, the creative team did a few, um, let's recreate this iconic moment. But more than that, they're giving you the rehearsal process. They're giving you, time in the editing bay and what that footage looked like from that film. And they're, they're giving you the behind the scenes relationships and all of that. So I think people are really getting off on, on seeing the stuff that they have never seen. And then they're also loving that it's, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's about Gwen Verdon. I mean, it was pretty interesting that they set out to make a TV show about Fosse and we walked away with so much of Glen. And I think we're just, um, we're really hungry for women to have their due and I, I could not fathom anyone being greater in the part than Michelle Williams. She was just riveting to watch. I think she'll win the Emmy for it, honestly. And I think people are really moved by her and Sam's relationship and the story of, you know, what is true about these icons and who really made the art happen. So I think that's why people are responding so well, at least I hope. And it's, and it's beautiful to watch I mean, it's just The cinematography is gorgeous.
0: It certainly is. Now, I'd like to take it back a little bit further. What inspired you to pursue a career in the performance industry?
1: Well, the first musical I ever saw was Merrily We Roll Along. Um, it was done by a local performance arts troupe back in Virg- or Norfolk, Virginia. I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I, it just was one of those moments where I finally saw, I saw myself. I had a real aha moment and I said, oh, this character on stage is me this show is me it all makes sense I mean I'd been singing for since I was a little girl and always thought you know I would be a singer but it wasn't until I really saw a musical that it all made sense to me and I was always very opinionated and I was very dramatic Mm -hmm. so my mom said I'll either be a lawyer or an actress um the other one might have paid more but (laughs) I became an actress I, I don't know I some people you know a lot of people have a path to something but I think I was just born this way it's just always something I it made sense to me.
0: And once you realized it made sense to you, how did you go about making it happen as a career? Because it's not the easiest industry to break into.
1: No, it's not. Um, it's, I always tell people, they're like, what advice would you give? And I'm like, if if there is something else you can do, then do it because this this life is very hard. But if it's the only thing you can imagine doing, then you have to try. Um, yeah. So I, I went to that same, the the production I saw, I tried to get in there in the Performing Arts Troupe, and I had a couple of auditions when I finally made it in. It was this kids' performing arts thing. And then from there, that translated. I was really lucky that um, I lived close to the Governor's School for the Arts, which was an arts program that you could go to in the afternoon in high school. So I could go get all my academics in the morning and then do arts, uh, which was everything from dance to vocals to acting classes in the afternoon every day. And I did that for all four years of high school. And from there, I went to a college. For musical theater, because I was just now, I was on that path, and I had I had been leading roles in high school, and so it just made sense. I, I seemed to have an act for it, so I kept doing it, and it was all I ever wanted, and did really well, and then I left college to do a show on the road, and I never looked back, and I remember that day I had to decide whether I was going back to school or, tr- or going to move to New York to try to make it happen, and I think that that's one of those defining moments where you you realize what you're made of, and, and I just, I had by the grace of god i had the ability to uh to try and was just strong enough to give it a shot so yeah
0: and you mentioned uh you know the advice that you give about if you can do something else do it what do you think is the greatest sacrifice you've had to give up in order to become a working artist
1: that's hard that's really hard i've never been asked that question i mean other than the financial stability. Because you're not guaranteed that at all um, at any level in this business. I think you have to really get to superstardom to, to feel like, okay, financially, the money I've made can sustain me. Um, so financially, but, you know, I would say probably you give up. It's so funny to say this because as the general public would probably think that actors have the most ego. But for me, I've had to give up my ego. Um, and I think ego is something we all have, you know, or the id, as Freud would say, it's just something we're born with. It's something that sort of can sustain us in times of thinking we're, you know, good enough for something so that we can actually survive. This business will constantly knock your ego completely down into the ground and tell you you're nothing. And, you know, you, you, we always think our last job is the last time we'll work. And so it's got, it's given me a real sense of humility and gratitude for the moment that I'm in, because tomorrow is not in this career, you're never guaranteed another moment after the one you just had. And so you learn to savor and love the moments you're in. And yeah, it's just given me a real, a real humility. Um, and I've had, yeah, I've had to sacrifice that, I think the idea of this is who I am. And I have been validated in this thing, because, you know, it's just not the path. It's up and down. There's no vertical climb.
0: And when you're in those down moments, especially you know when you're auditioning and not getting work, how do you ensure to stay motivated and mentally healthy?
1: Well, I think for myself, I have a lot of personal practices that keep me um, feeling good and 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 forward thinking. Um, I am very dedicated to my health and exercise. Uh, I meditate. I am a faithful person and, uh, you know, consider my myself be a woman of faith and invest in my spiritual life. Um, I believe in doing good. I'm actually uh, a part of many different uh, organizations that help uh, in, in all kinds of areas, and I think that that's really important. I'm politically active. I'm an activist, and I'm also a writer. So, And I do uh, cabarets with my husband. I'm always doing lots of things. I'm a jack-of-all-trades, if you will, but <laughs> I'm, I'm always keeping busy is what I meant to say um, And I do, I write my own stuff. So at least, you know, or at the very least, if I'm not being cast in someone else's show, I'm at least creating something that feels like I'm putting art into the world.
0: Do you think it's a necessity now for artists to have more than one string to their bow to be successful?
1: I do. Yeah, I absolutely do. We're seeing that in a myriad of ways. I mean, it used to be the triple threat, right? Singing, acting, dancing. Then it sort of broke into different tracks. So you have, you know, principals who mainly sing and act, and then you have the chorus of dancers. Now we're swinging a little bit back around to so that triple threat, but it's also quadruple and even more because you've got, you know, the need for actors to play instruments. That's become really popular. Um, the need for actors to be able to do television as well as film and Broadway, which are just, you know, a different set of same, same general idea, but a different set of technique techniques. Um, and then a lot of actors creating their own work and being expected to self-generate art. So, yeah, I, I definitely don't think... There's no such thing as like the one-trick pony anymore. You have to be able to do multiple things.
0: And speaking of TV and film, despite your being probably best known for Broadway, you joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe when you had a role in The Punisher. <laughs> was that particularly different yeah. to anything you'd ever done before?
1: It was really different in terms of the fans, for sure. This is just such a loyal fan base. Um, and it can go both ways, you, you know, like on the one hand, they're so loyal and loving and welcome you in. And on the other hand, if they don't think you're the right person to play that, that role, you know, they're very really vocal about that. Um, so that has been, that would have been really cool and really interesting kind of, uh, new adventure for me, uh, sort of recreating a role that already existed in the comics. Um. And then to see everyone's response to John in the role of the Punisher and how amazing he was and um, seeing him get his due and to be playing his wife, which was so, you know, uh, iconic, but also great and uh, humbling for me because he's, he's amazing. Um, yeah, it was definitely different. It's just a different set of roles. Uh, the NDAs are definitely different. I couldn't take any pictures on set. I couldn't ever post about it. I mean, it's really hard to be a part of something and not want to share that with even your family. Uh, I can never send a picture, you know, so that was really different. I mean, we have that in our business too yeah. on Broadway, but this one was particularly special. In fact, when I auditioned for the Punisher, it was, it had a different name and a different character name and a different description. I actually didn't have any clue what I was auditioning for or who I, or what the role was. Um, I thought it was for something completely different. And then they called and said, you got the part, here's what the show actually is. And here's who you're playing. And I found that to be just crazy bizarre. And then when I would go to set every day, you know, it was a different name. So it's pretty interesting.
0: It certainly would be. And obviously you've done a lot of TV and film. Do you prefer that to theater?
1: No, I don't prefer it to theater. Um, I always say that theater is my first love because for me, that sort of, I, I'm a workaholic. I'm a total workhorse. I love eight shows a week. I mean, I hate it, too. It's horrible and hard to do, but it's also a challenge to me physically and mentally and emotionally, and I love a challenge. So my I think I'm built for that. Um, I'm also built to go on stage and for two to three hours tell this story start to finish and feel the journey of that arc. And the thing about film and TV is, it's you know, I think Christopher Walken said it best. He said, I get paid to wait the acting I do for free. It's just a lot of waiting. It's a lot of sitting around. And then, you know, sometimes you'll be sitting around for multiple hours and they'll be like, okay, and you're called to set and go. And you're in the middle of a big scene that happens in the middle of the film and you haven't even shot the beginning yet. And so it's just a totally different skill set. Sometimes it's super rewarding and you're on a show like Fosse Verdon that you love and you can't believe you're getting to do it. And then other times it's extremely tedious. You're shooting, you know, night scenes in the rain and it's, you know, and the material that day is not anything exciting. And it's just, it's not quite the same thing, but what I do love about film and TV is how varied it is. Um, the Broadway process, in terms, at least when you start going to rehearsals, to tech, to opening, it's all you know. You know what you're getting in for, and it's sort of the same ride, even if the character is different. Uh, with TV, it's always completely different, so
0: that's fun. And you mentioned eight shows a week and the strain that that can be. How, when you first started acting and performing on Broadway, how was that first eight-show week?
1: Well, my first my Broadway do was a play which was really interesting because I had been doing musicals for so long. And then I get, you know, this job in a play. I was the youngest person on stage with all of these Broadway legends. Rosemary Harris, John Maxwell, John Glover, um, Tony Roberts, Larry Pine. The list keeps going. gas fire. it was crazy cast. And we were doing the Royal Family and sort of a play on the Barrymores. And I'm playing the youngest daughter of the woman who's basically Ethel Barrymore. And it was a three-hour play with two intermissions. It was very long, eight shows a week. But I wasn't singing. But because I wasn't singing, I was like, "Woo! I can have a life outside of the theater. I can have a cocktail every now and then and not have to worry about hitting the high notes. And I'll never forget because I actually lost my speaking voice getting too excited about being able to have a life outside of the show. I remember like, I think I went out to a birthday party after one show. And, you know, we were hooting and hollering and then I didn't have a show. I didn't have a voice the next day to even talk. And I was like, oh my God, even plays are very demanding of the body. And, and obviously the voice and projecting and all that. So you get to learn that like, no, you're not, no eight show a week is, uh, is, um, is, you know, immune to that. And then I'll never forget my first musical and then learning, okay, like vocal stamina. It took me years to figure out how to give. An eight show performance that every show was one that I could walk away going, I did my best. I was at top of my game. Because what would happen is you'd get to, you know, show six, show five, show six, and you'd be like, oh, I'm at 90%, I'm at 80%. And that's really hard. And that's not fair to the audiences. They're paying full price and they should get your 100% all the time. And so it took a long time with realizing literally how many ounces of coffee I could have a day or how much sleep exactly I needed every night before a two-show day and where you know what extracurricular activities I could, could do. And it's different for everyone. So it, um, it took a few years to get right.
0: Mm. And with Broadway shows, obviously they're only accessible to those in the immediate area. Do you think that they should be filmed or broadcast in some capacity at the end of their runs to make them more accessible globally?
1: Well, funny you should say that. Um, I actually just participated in... Uh, it was... Created for streaming, Paul Gordon, who is a composer, a brilliant composer, came up with this streaming musicals idea, and I was able to play Emma, uh, the musical version of Emma, as their first launch. So what they did is they staged it on stage, but to be filmed and streamed. And it's sort of the idea that no longer did you have to buy a ticket to come see this thing, that it would that it would be available to you on your computers for download or on your televisions for streaming. And it is now. You can, you can download Emma online and, and watch me do it. And it's, it's a brilliant adaptation of the play um, into musical form by Paul Gordon. But, so what's happening now is um, companies are, there are, are a couple of different filming companies. The most prominent one is Broadway HD. And they come in and they throw, you know, a million plus dollars at a filming of the production. And you can watch it online in posterity. So that does exist. I do like it. The only problem um, I can see with it is that you're getting the Broadway production filmed as it was staged for a Broadway audience. And you're watching that on TV, but it wasn't meant for television. So what I fear could happen is that people think they're getting the experience of what that show was, but it was staged for you in the audience, not for you watching it on television and that's what i really love about streaming musicals is they're changing that they're saying we staged it to stream this is how we intended you to see it on camera not for someone in the audience so um i think it sort of bridges a gap and allows more access to shows
0: and obviously streaming musicals is a fairly new idea and you have been working in the entertainment industry for a while what changes and evolutions have you seen in the last few years
1: oh my gosh it's uh, it's changed completely everything has changed i feel like um the idea, like these, these networks, uh, you see Fox and, um, NBC going head to head every year, putting up a new musical and having their their live musical events. Like, you know, they did the hairspray and, excuse me, and Rent and Sound of Music and, and the ratings going up and up and up every year because it seems that there's a real hunger for this, which it's so funny because if we look back to the 19, 30s, 40s, 50s, we're seeing musical theater actors being everyday household names and then making their way into being TV and film stars. It's not happening that way anymore. We have a real divide. There are TV and film stars and there are theater stars and nobody really <clears throat> has heard of a lot of the theater stars and you, they, they just have to hope they can get on a TV show someday. And it, But it's almost as hard as getting the theater gig in the first place. But now we're starting to see that crossover again. So it's starting to go back and theater stars are starting to become more crossover, you're starting to see them more in TV stuff. Like Flossie Verdon is really bringing TV or sorry, bringing theater stars into the television world and movies like the remake of Mary Poppins. And, you know, just this sort of resurgence of musical theater in pop culture is starting to say, okay, we don't have a divide in who is a star. Everyone, you know, all of these people are stars in their own way and we can all commingle again. So that's been really nice. And especially as someone who does musical theater, theater and film and TV, that I can be able to do both simultaneously and bridge that gap has been really great because there was a time not that long ago where <clears throat> I wouldn't be seen for a film because I was a theater star. And then I wouldn't be seen for a theater piece because I was on TV, thinking that for some reason I couldn't do the other because I had chosen one path. So that's just, that's starting. I think Lynn manuel specifically is debunking that and bridging that gap for us. And among the many things he's given us in our you know art form, that's been a big one. Um, yeah, so I think that's what's changing, and obviously, uh, diverse casting, and talking about that, and inclusive casting, you know, we're finally doing that. We're not just calling it colorblind casting anymore, we're we're writing shows for people of color about people of color, and so that's been a great thing to to watch change.
0: It certainly has. And from a career point of view, what would you like to achieve next?
1: Oh, man. That's hard. You know, I think I've gotten so good at not uh, asserting my will on what I want because, you know, God always laughs at your plans sort of adage that uh, I always just say I want to do good work. I want to do meaningful work. And don't get me wrong, even if 1930 screwball comedy can be very meaningful. And that's exactly what I'm about to do in a, in a new show coming up here in a minute. Um, we're we're readings for a new show. Um, but I want to do meaningful work, however it presents itself. If it's TV, wonderful. Um, I mean, certainly, like, being on a, another Netflix show or Amazon or Hulu, these, like, really super uh, important, like, I am just now started watching Chernobyl, and it's amazing and important, and I would love to be a part of something super meaningful, important. Um, anything politically with political references or overtones because uh, we just we need to come together in this country and start getting things right because we've been getting it wrong here for a while but yeah any anything that's meaningful any good work i want to i want to work with good writers and people of integrity and i wish i could you know have a crystal ball to say where that'll be but i'm i'm fortunate in that because i love so many different mediums i'm open to whatever's next
0: and speaking of that political nature um and you mentioned earlier your activism I'd like to mention the Hysterical Women's Society, which you have recently formed. What can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so it's
1: been started by my friend, Laura Lee Geyer, and I'm one of the core members uh, working on it with her. And we are actually about to launch our inaugural gala. It's July 29th here in New York City. And it, what will happen is all of the money raised in that gala will be given. Uh, and we're uh, we're in partnership with uh, and with the ACLU, all of the money raised will be given to organizations, grassroots organizations, specifically in Alabama that are trying to op- oppose the new um, abortion bans that have happened earlier this month. And there are a lot of other state legislators that, are, that have been emboldened to follow suit there. And so we're basically saying, as a community of women, we're not going to stand for the rollbacks in healthcare that are that's currently underway in this country. I mean, we keep saying, man, it's starting to look like Handmaid's Tale, but this really feels that way. And not only is an assault on women's health rights and women's rights in general, but specifically on underprivileged, underrepresented neighborhoods. Like, I think we're fooling ourselves into thinking that these abortion bans don't mostly affect poor communities and, and women of color. And it absolutely does. And it is an all out assault on them. And as an, uh, a white woman who doesn't live in the South, I want to lend my voice to that cause, as does my white cis male husband to say that people of all walks of life, color, and sexual orientation have the right to decide what they do with their bodies, with their doctors, um, and who they love. And we have been fighting for equal rights and women's rights at every turn, and we're just... We're getting really sick of it, and so we're we're going big, and we've got a lot of good people that are going to be involved, and hoping that it won't just be a one and done. I mean, that's not our plan. Our plan is to be an organization that continues to fight. Um, these are the same women I marched with in the first women's march, and we just were um we're connected in that way of of not letting our country go backwards. We won't go backwards.
0: Why do you think it is that these battles are still being fought? It's you know 2019. We shouldn't be still fighting, yet, you know, we are. Why Why does this happen, do you think?
1: I think it's a, um, a real... <laughs> it, it is not lost on me that Alabama is second to last in education and, the, you know, one of the first states to roll back this part of Roe v. Wade. I think this is happening because... We are uneducated about a lot of things. And quite literally, the Trump presidency, somebody said this to me today, and it really stuck with me. He was so hell-bent on building a wall. He is the wall. He has created now a hard line between what we say is the right and the left, or really between between right and wrong on so many issues. And he's created the idea of truth and knowledge to be something that is that is that is uh, something to be contested. But but truth is you know, an opinion. That it's not even a hard fact anymore. So I think I think I think ignorance has led us here. We've stopped communicating and we've stopped believing in facts and stopped reading facts. I mean, what's going on with the environment alone is is terrifying. That people can say, okay, I look at your fact and I say bullshit, and I don't want to read any more about it. So we're just, we're not reading, we're uneducated. And that uneducation and that proliferation that only the, I don't know, uppity left reads that kind of mumbo jumbo or whatever is being said, and I've actually heard, you know, mumbo jumbo being thrown around about science. Um, The idea that the left and right are somehow now in their core value systems, changing what they believe to be true about how you even operate as a citizen in what you read. And there was a time when we thought it was really important to listen to everybody and make an educated opinion. And it's not that anymore. The divide is too great. Um, And I think everyone is feeling persecuted and not listened to. And so rather than listening, which is the key, let me listen to what the other person has to say is I'm just going to scream louder And um, I don't know. I mean, in my humble opinion, that's what's going on. It's it's just a real lack of education on the facts and what these laws mean. And and I keep saying it's not about this. These abortion laws are not about the babies. It's not about pro-life versus pro-choice. It's about what happens to poor women of color in these communities when their medical rights are taken away Um, and not putting the issues like education, which is where it all stems from, and and quality of life first. So I'm not, I mean, I don't I don't claim to be uh, an expert on it, but in my humble opinion, that's what I think is going on.
0: And just to wrap us up, what place do you think art has to, you know, say that truth to make a difference to, to fight and be political?
1: I think if you look throughout history, art is the great common denominator, music, storytelling. It's as old as, is humanity, and it's the thing that brings everyone together. And I know that can sound really trite, but very uh, rarely is it in a, is it a, a, a cause for divisiveness. It, more times than not, it brings us together. Sometimes a song can say what what you know what an argument can't, what an article can't. It speaks a sort of universal language. And it also, I mean, I always say good art does one of two things. It holds up a mirror or it hits with a hammer. And sometimes if it's really good, it does both. Um, And so it just strikes to the emotional core. And what's happening in this country is we've put our brains on the back burners. we put our emotions completely forward. We've decided to let our emotions about what we think about everything drive our decision making. And we stopped using our brains. And if that's true, then we need something that can speak to those emotions. And that's art. That's art. That's music. Um, and you know, it, it also is a form of entertainment. People come together all the time at concerts who would normally never even speak to each other on the streets. So if we can use art to better inform us and
0: to unite
1: us because we're so divided, then I'm happy to be a part of that cause.
0: Kelly, you are a hundred percent right. I have loved talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening.
0: That was the lovely Kelly Barrett. We'll be back with another exciting episode soon. As always, thanks to our incredible supporters, Mad Zombie Collectibles, Palace Nova Cinemas. All their details are on the supporters section of the website. I've been your host, Benjamin May McKay. You can follow me over on Twitter at BenjaminMM underscore Instagram, Benjamin May McKay, or Facebook, search my name and look for the blue check mark. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.